blue, which means I think we're live to the general public. Um, that's exciting. Hello, good evening, everyone. Uh, the 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 chat is here. Can you hear us? How's how's the audio, folks? Give us a shout if the audio is uh, is isn't working. Good evening. Oh, we have Samir Samir Jaraj is here with us to talk about. In fact, let's let's go straight to let's let's do that immediately. Normally, I kind of do a bit of dithering, but actually this time. I'm going to go straight in. Samir is here. Hello, Samir. Pleasure to hey. um, have you along for tonight's show. Uh, sorry that I, the tech is so shonky. <laughs> At some point, it'll be really professional. You just dive in and it'll all be working. But until that day, jerry-rigged is, is how I best to describe this podcast. But there we go. Um, yes. Oh, everyone can hear us. Marvellous. Um, Samir, yeah. So... I think before we crack, I, I, I very briefly sort of say um, that I I dragged you into into this through you 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 sent out a call for um for people to be involved in the project, which we'll talk about uh, at the end of the I put in a slide. We'll we'll talk about that at the end. Um, but uh, uh, little did you expect me to then say, oh, do you want to come on a podcast and talk about it? But <laughs> so I can only apologise. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, yeah, it's always good to you know. It's it's a really interesting interesting topic and just yet yeah, it's really kind of like good to explore it more because i think there's still you know as, as we were saying in our kind of like when we had our conversation about yeah. about and everything there's just still so much that's yeah. relevant to to you know the issues today it's it's, it's just there's just like this I, I was getting like a as i was putting the slides together i was getting like a, a, a kind of a incre more increasingly claustrophobic sense of incoming doom with some mm. of the financial stuff on this um you know, it's it's like ah yeah, subprime mortgage lending. That's uh, and, and bonds based on packages of mortgages. Yeah, that's that that definitely went well. And this is definitely not another system of finance creating itself that's entirely self perpetuating and absolutely fine. Um, yeah. So anyway, we'll get to that. But first, we must um, we must have a look at. And I haven't done this for a while actually. In fact, this is possibly the first time I'm doing it this year. We have to look at the. Um, the COVID statistics. So these are the transport statistics um, as a percentage of pre-COVID levels. Um, and I, I haven't done my 2022 slide yet. So we're just looking at the overall crisis. And um, what we can see on screen here, we've got at the top here, we have cycling, which is in green. Uh, the bottom here we have in blue, we have got railways uh, and, and the, the, the pink and the red. Uh, the pink is buses and the red is road transport, uh, kind of private road transport. And, and this is kind of what's been happening recently. We had a big drop at Christmas, but I suppose reassuringly, there's been a big old climb again of, uh, of the rail usage. Um, so it's it's jumped right back up toward. There was a surge before Christmas, and then it's jumped right back up. So we're back up to okay. It's not where it was, but we're back up to sixty percent, um, which is good. I was worried that it be, we'd be back to square one, drop right off again, but it seems to climb quite quickly, which is good. Uh, road transport has pitched downwards, which is interesting, uh, and cycling kind of back to one hundred percent of pre-COVID levels. So there we go. That's the COVID stats, fresh off the press. Um, we'll be keeping a close eye on that through the year as ever. But I'm hoping that by the end of this year, twenty twenty two, we'll be back to nominally 100% levels again um, if government doesn't keep all these services not running, which it has, but that's that's another story. Um, onwards to the news, very briefly, because we've got a lot to get through tonight, but very briefly the news. All of you have been sending me um, these, pictures of these things in Japan, and I just want to tell you all, yes, they're dumb. They don't make any sense. This is a bus. There is a road next to that railway. Why is the bus just not on the road? It's a bad train, and it's a very heavy bus. 
it's it's too small and too light a train it's too heavy a bus it makes no sense um why have they done this <laughs> answers on a postcard these aren't a very sensible use of railway capacity and they're certainly not a very good use of what looks like quite a shiny bus anyway uh so that they're, they're in japan they're not very good um Ah, this chap. So um, Grant Shapps has announced there are going to be no more useless announcements, so we can look forward to him closing his Twitter account. Uh, no, uh, for some reason, the culture war has invaded the railways, and um, we're all sick of announcements, apparently. Uh, and so um, here's Grant Shapps saying time and again, repeated over and over in the subtitles for, for our own amusement. No, um, he did an announcement saying that he's going to get rid of unnecessary announcements, which no one really cares about. And is possibly the most trivial and unimportant thing that you could, I could possibly think of as an issue to deal with on the railway. And what's even funnier is that it later turned out that the government does not have the power to instruct train companies to stop announcements. Ministers deemed to be unnecessary and there are no plans to legislate for this. So um, so that's really good stuff there. Um, really, really useful use of um, public money to create that snazzy video that you did. So great. Uh, what else is in the news? It's, it, I'm afraid it continues to be this dispiriting. Um, bus Back Better got binned. Uh, bus Back Better has been um, ripped apart by the Treasury, as we'd always expect. Bus Back Better was actually a really good report. One of the better things that's been championed by this government, which is to, to a strategy to improve uh, bus services quite radically um, across uh, across the country, across the whole UK. And obviously, Treasury have said no. So um, so that's really good. So the railways and the buses both suffering from Treasury's um, disinterest at the moment. Um, oh, yeah, and that's uh, Noel Dolphin, friend of the show and Patreon support, actually. Thanks, Noel. Uh, pointed out something that I thought was really interesting, which is that you know, when you've got these plans being kind of announced and then shredded within uh, kind of only a few months, it explains why a lot of local authorities and, and regions just don't submit submissions to these funding competitions. Because they already have limited resources and they can spend time, money and effort uh, writing a bid only for that money to just never materialise. I think, um, yeah, it's a really good point. You know, we, we wonder why these we're not seeing more kind of station station reopening announcements and all these things. It's because often those have to be led by local authorities that don't expect that money to materialise and don't have the resources to risk on on, on such an endeavour. It's um, kind of catch-22, not not healthy. Um, yeah. Anyway, so there's that. And uh, and also, I suppose, interestingly, the integrated rail plan, which everyone is ragging on at this point, um, two interesting bits of contributory evidence, um, I'm using rabbit ears, evidence, um, uh, surfaced over the last week as part of the evidence being submitted to the Transport Select Committee, I think. Um, I just submitted a pack to the Transport Select Committee. We'll see if they pick that evidence up. That'll be interesting. It'll be even more fun if I end up in front of the, in front of the desks giving evidence that'll be uh, unnerving anyway um most fun is that they have is this particular document here which is the integrated rail plan for the north and midlands technical annex uh, i've read through it and it contains zero calculations uh this whole the whole irp the cancellation of of some substantial infra rail infrastructure um is based on absolutely no analysis which is fantastic uh this is the mott mcdonald report that possibly fed a little bit into it possibly justifying it but this whole document here, the Mott McDonald document, this this one, the the, the one here, um, is it has the line does not fulfil government requirements uh, and government aims uh, scattered liberally throughout it. So um, anyway, we'll dig through those in a future episode. Let's not dwell on it because we have to talk about Carillion. Um, Samir is here to talk about Carillion. We're going to talk about Carillion. Um, and, oh, good grief, there's so much to unpick. So I think, with, without further ado, and only eight minutes into the episode, um, it's it's time to start. Welcome to tonight's Rail Natter! Oh. 
City 225 fades away. Oh, golly. There it is. It's a little... Carillion entered the zeitgeist sufficiently for there to be Hornby car models of them. Um, good grief. There, there, There is Carillion. But before we talk about Carillion, we need to talk about Samir. Samir, hello, welcome. Sorry about that news. Rattling through the news there at high speed. Um, Oh, it's chaos. I'm sure you're watching from the wings and sort of seeing, you know, seeing policy. I mean, it's it's true across all policy realms, I presume. It's the same sort of pain. Announcements that are possibly good, but mostly just Treasury saying no to everything, right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what what happens nowadays. It's what happens, happened always, isn't it? Uh, Treasury says no. Treasury says no, absolutely. So, Samir, um, it's a chance for you to introduce yourself. Um, yeah, Tell, tell us about yourself, and, and and I suppose tell us about how you ended up digging around uh, the Carillion story. So I'm Samir Taraj. I'm a journalist and author. Um, I work part of my time at the New Statesman, mainly writing about policy, so you know, Treasury says no stuff. Um, and then part of my time is on freelance projects. So one of those um, happens to be on audit, the sexy, attractive world of accountancy and numbers and governance, which kind of combines the fact that it's really important and utterly mind-numbingly, mind-numbingly boring for yeah. most people and utterly impenetrable. It's one of those challenges that it's, it, yeah, it's one of those things that's so important and fundamental to everything and so impenetrable at the same time. So the project um, is looking at some of the big audit failures that have happened in the past few years. So um, British Home Stores, Thomas Cook, Patisserie Valerie and Carillion, all cases in which their auditors um, were heavily criticised, um, where they were fined, where there was significant failings and where there was quite a lot of reflection, reflection over um, what is the what is the role of the of, of the auditor now? Because they appear to be too cosy with the, yeah. with, with the companies and organisations they're auditing. Um, and my specific job in that was to find people who were directly affected by the collapse of these companies. So employees, subcontractors, um, suppliers, to put, you know, a human face on, on as you said, this kind of, this thing that can be kind of quite abstract and seem quite boring, but when it goes wrong, it goes very wrong, and tens of thousands of people can lose their their jobs in a second. Yeah, absolutely, and and I suppose yeah, we, the reason we're picking on Carillion in particular is because as as a rail adjacent podcast, ostensibly Carillion had its tendrils through the railways in 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 a, in a kind of pretty spectacular fashion, um, but the reality is a lot of the you know the, the we're going to see more major company collapses in the, in, in, in the kind of near future. The, all of the reports I read talking about Carillion said, yeah, this is going to happen again in an even bigger way pretty soon. It's almost absolutely guaranteed to happen. Um, and, and then the kind of the subsequent things I was reading was like all the regulation that was supposed to be hardened up and toughened up after Carillion's collapse has just been watered right almost back down again to where it was before. And, and I, I mean, I might not be, I might be overly pessimistic on that, but it just feels like, 
not many lessons have been learned at all from Carillion. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe we'll talk a bit more, kind of touch a bit more on that later. Um, yeah, so I, what what we'll do is, I think, given given that I, uh, I, given that there's a risk that this might go on long because both of us find this quite interesting, despite the fact that it is quite dry, um, we shall press on. So let's get our two minute dry face in the top corner, and also let me resize uh, the Skype window because uh, of. Uh, reasons there we go uh so carillion there's a little model defender um i I suppose the first question to answer if we're going to go full sort of socratic method is what what was what is a carillion what was carillion um and and i suppose to do that i've i've put together a little potted history feel free to interject at any point um samir but i'm going to go through this little potted history we're going to start with um 1964 which is when there was a merger of several kind of construction companies, civil engineering companies, um, but primarily sort of materials and road building companies and road aggregate companies that formed uh, what was kind of officially called Tarmac Derby, I think. And then they kind of lost, they, they stopped calling themselves Tarmac Derby fairly quickly and were just called Tarmac. And the, they, had the, they had the seven T's here, which was their logo for quite a long time. This was Tarmac. Uh, and they were um, founded, I think it was primarily Midlands. They had their base in, oh golly, where was it? It was possibly Derby, actually, or near Derby. Anyway, they were they were like Midlands-based, but obviously grew pretty rapidly. Uh, and in fact, grew pretty rapidly to become international. Um, and this was their logo right the way until 1996, when they 90s-ified um, and got a slightly snazzier typefacey logo. But by this point, by 1996, they had worked, you know, Tarmac had worked on They'd moved from being just like a road aggregates provider to, to being a house builder in quite a big way, in fact. They were a major house builder through the 70s and 80s, particularly the 80s. Uh, major civil engineering projects that they were working on, so like motorways galore. I think they built 10% of Britain's motorways, actually, Tarmac. Like, I think pretty spectacular, sizable chunk of, of sort of uh, roads being built. Like major civil engineering projects globally, in fact, lots of projects. Um, and then in 1990, so from 1996, moved to 1999, um, and they were told by, or I can't, I don't, I can't, it's a mixture of their own decision. You might know better than me on this. Um, a mixture of their own decision, or they were told to uh, to enact a demerger. So they, their demerger involved splitting what eventually is today uh, Tarmac as part of CRH, and away from, splitting away from that in 1999 was Carillion. And this was uh, Carillion was formed of their. Um, uh, their civil engineering contractor business, so the, the kind of the construction business, right? So the not the bits that did materials and sort of aggregates, uh, also not the house building bits. The house building bits, they did a bit of a swap. I think the house building bits, Carillion or, or Tarmac and Wimpy did like a bit of a swap, I think. So the house building bits of Tarmac went to Wimpy and the civil engineering bits of Wimpy went to Tarmac, which then ended up in Carillion, I think. I don't know. Correct me if any of this is not quite right, uh, Samir, but I think this is basically what happened. So there's a demerger which created Carillion in 1999. And between 2001 and 2014, they got a new chief exec in 2001, and they basically went for a massive period of acquirements and growth and, and gobbling up lots of smaller companies. So um, particular names here that might be familiar to people is John Lang are in there. Uh, McAlpine, Alfred McAlpine there. Uh, Molum is another one that's kind of major, major kind of, uh, these are quite a lot of big kind of contracting uh, organizations, big civil engineering companies, and they were just growing. That was up to 2014. Now, if we skip back a little, 
Um, oh, actually, before we skip back a little, uh, talk about how Carilion were involved in the railways. Well, they started out, so back in, in 1999, they, they had a small uh, stake within sort of railway maintenance organisations. As you can see, here is a rather dilapidated-looking, knackered tamper. Here is the tamper. Um, with a Carilion logo on it. There's the Carilion logo that's been sellotaped on. Uh, looking rather dilapidated, but this they started out with this. But by 2014... Uh, Carillion were Network Rail's biggest contractor, um, biggest individual contractor, being paid uh, 280 million, uh, 281 million pounds that that financial year. Um, uh, that's if we ignore the fact that Balfour BT are the Balfour BT are bigger, but they're weirdly split into three bits. Uh, but they got paid 350 million total. So if you like, uh, Carillion were Network Rail's second biggest contractor, but they were huge. You know, uh, a third of a billion. Uh, the best part of a third of a billion pounds of of contracts let and and and, and controlled by Carillion. So they're a major player. And I, you know, I, I was doing work for Carillion. Carillion were when I started in the industry. I was working for Atkins, and all of my work was on the Midland Main Line, underneath Carillion. We were working for Carillion as part of the major kind of Midland Main Line um, sort of CP five control period five uh, kind of multi frame multi asset framework sort of contract they had. Huge sort of. Uh, kind of sp multi-project spanning framework of a, a lot of Midland Mainline stuff uh, going on, particularly electrification, but also some of the other big civil engineering projects down there. Um, and in fact, I was going to put it up here. I've got video footage that I was taking on site of Carillion building things. There's all people in oranges with Carillion on their back, a bit like this, and sparks flying everywhere. You know, so in the thick of it, they were they were building things. Now, if we roll back very slightly to October 2012, for reasons that we will explain a little bit later. October 2012, um, Carillion got involved in a thing called reverse factoring. And the general attitude was this was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And then a fairly short period later, in March 2015, um, UBS, some consultants in, uh, and analysts in UBS um, were looking at Carillion and commented on the fact that they reckon that reverse factoring is very bad. And it was going to be really bad, so um, that was a bit of a, a bit of a, a flip on the old reverse factoring. We'll explain what reverse factoring is very soon. Don't worry, everyone. So you just need to bear in mind that that within a fairly short space of time, we went from people thinking this is a very good thing to suddenly people think it's a very bad thing. And indeed, by July 2017, um, <laughs> are announcing 1.15 billion pounds of losses, and I put this in inverted commas because. Um, well, by the 13th of January 2018, things had gone from bad to worse, and the BBC started reporting that there was a matter of days to stop the collapse of Carillion. I remember this in the news um, because it was, I think I'd, it was fairly, I'd, I'd moved to a different company and was dealing with Carillion quite a bit less, and so it didn't feel quite as immediate. But I was aware of the pain that a lot of my colleagues were starting to suffer, particularly actually a lot of my project managers, because they were the commercial people were dealing with the fact that they had no idea whether the pay money was going to come through for the projects that they just, you know, had a load of designers working on nonstop for months. And then, sure enough, 15th of January 2018, uh, Carillion disintegrated. It collapsed. It went into liquidation. Um, so that was the end of Carillion. That was their demise. Samir, anything, any, anything, any, any of your own memories of this period or anything that you can add over this bit of history? I mean, I, I remember it does, it seemed to kind of fall over very quickly, but clearly, you know, like the, the writing was on the wall kind of months earlier. And, you know, one of the things that, that is often picked up is that, you know, back in July when they issued their profit warning, their shares plummeted. But of course, within, within a matter of days, they were awarded, uh, there was a, a, a contract of around 1.4 billion pounds for work on HS2. Yep. Then a few months later, 
I think in maybe in November, were awarded um, an, a, a contract in the hundreds of millions for the electrification of the I think London to Northampton line. So, you know, it's it's it's, 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 it's feels very surreal that, um, that that those two things kind of coincided, given that you know the underlying problems in the company seem to be pretty apparent by by july yeah because it's because there are two things i mean two things on that the first is that um clearly people understood that there were problems because you know you had analysts you know this analyst from ubs in 2015 was saying mm, there's something there, there are some problems here and they're going to come home to roost fairly soon um and you know people were commenting you know there are private eye stories there's all sorts of, i remember reading them about Carillion really being not in a healthy situation healthy state at the same time there were still a, clearly there weren't you know this was not apparent to a lot of other people because they were being awarded contracts on mass um as you say the, the, the hs2 one is particular you know particularly for our audience here uh everyone was particularly a, a, a kind of noticed the hs2 contract and that was controversial when it went out but also it was awarded to carillion so it is interesting that this that, that that it was, and, and we'll talk a bit about how and why that was allowed to happen, and and, and I'm, I'm I think we'll probably end up talking more about that that element than than others. But um, so from those one point one five billion pound losses, I've taken my rabbit ears away now because by the end of it, it was, turned out that that they were basically in a hole for the best part of seven billion pounds, which is just absolutely remarkable. It's just an enormous amount of money um, for a single organisation like that. It's just remarkable. So, um. So that was the hit. That was the end of Carillion. That was their 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 creation in 1999 to their total collapse in uh, not even, um, you know, barely a short while later. Really, it's just quite kind of what is it? Not even 20 years, and they were gone. Um, my I'm an engineer, not an mathematician. My brain just turned to jelly. It's what happens when you're having to press buttons a lot. So, uh, what was the time? Of, what was the impact of Carillion's collapse? Well, this is worth us exploring. Um. Matt Reed, why were Carillion awarded those contracts when they were in such a mess? We'll get to that. Um, we will get to that. So, everything's gone blue. I'm going to go through some statistics. Um, and I think, Samir, you, I'm sure you've got thoughts on some of these. Um, anyone in the chat who was at Carillion? Um, yeah, uh, just just chip in with your thoughts. Um, so, so they were, in the UK, at liquidation, there were um, 18,257 uh, UK employees of Carillion. But globally, it's worth not forgetting sight of the fact that globally there were 43,000 employees. So this wasn't just a UK collapse. There were thousands, you know, the same number again and more of international workers who also were uh, finding themselves in difficult situations or perhaps without some of the safety nets that we have in the UK. So 43,000 globally. Um, of that, the of the UK numbers, um, 4,312 were made redundant or retired or kind of left and decided to just sort of you know change career within a year. So I've smooshed in the redundancy numbers in there, but the majority of those people were made redundant, and then kind of a smaller number of retired or, or left the industry um, within a year. So that's 22% of their workforce. Um, about 14,000, so 76% of the UK workforce, transferred elsewhere. So so kind of were 2P'd across into into other organisations. Actually, I don't know if it was 2P, but they were they were transferred across kind of pretty much as they were into other organisations, right? Yeah, I, I don't think 2P, I mean, from a, a, a different collapse of a long time back, I seem to vaguely remember that 2P doesn't apply when, because your employment contract is ended. Ah, yeah, okay. So actually but, it is a re-employment, but, but, but essentially. That, that could have been... That that was back in I think that one was twenty ten that I remember kind of happening, but 
Yeah. It was um so so that was a lot of people. So certainly in terms of the railways, that was people transferring either into Network Rail or um I think Amy bought up contracts and, and picked up a lot of the sort of the work being delivered by Carillion. Uh so yeah, but I think my understanding within the railways a lot of people but essentially were brought in house actually to deliver quite a lot of the work. So you had a lot of people suddenly finding themselves on the books in Network Rail. Um the, the other challenge, of course, with this, and I don't know to what extent I picked this up, and maybe more in suppliers, I haven't really written about it, but it's worth re- remembering that a lot of uh, labour, certainly that my understanding, you know, the labour, the workforce within the railways, a lot of it is in terms of the people on on the ballast, a lot of them are contingent workers. And so they won't have come under this list of, of, of 19, you know, the best part of 20,000 staff. They, they, they'll have been in part of the supply chain. And this number, these top totals don't include the people who were essentially made redundant by the collapse of suppliers, which which we will look at suppliers in a bit, but they're not included in this total. So I don't actually, I couldn't find a number for the total estimate estimate of of, redu- of people made redundant. I don't know if you've got a guess on that. So I, I found a, a figure for 75,000 people in the supply chain. Um, 75,000? 75, so 75, yeah, but I'm not sure if that's, if that's subcontractors or if that is subcontractors and suppliers and because because that would have to be an estimate because presumably um you know like it, it just it would just be much harder to figure yeah. out like if a supplier has just kind of cut back on or or, or a subcontractor just cut, has, has made a few people redundant yeah. um yeah and it's actually uh yeah someone who i know is uh is is a worker on um a colleague on the on the railways lots of us left well before the collapse when we saw the writing on the wall so yeah it's interesting that that there was some attrition at Carillion when people sort of started realizing that it's um that it wasn't in a good state some staff who could that, that, that and probably a minority were able to just fairly quickly find work elsewhere did didn't jump so that seventy five thousand is that the total number of people in the supply chain connected to Carillion rather than the, the redundancies that's just the total number right yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's the set I got. Is like people worked in its supply chain, but not necessarily lost their jobs, but yeah, would have been yeah. um, affected. Yeah, with with Carillion. Yeah, don't worry, my my wonderful uh, handwriting there associated with Carillion. And then yeah, so if we assume, you know, so you're looking at thousands of people who are made redundant. You know, four and a half thousand um, redundant or retired or left within a year. That's just within the twenty thousand in the UK. You can extrapolate those numbers across the organisations, uh, kind of uh, as we'll talk about suppliers. Um, worth highlighting, and it was mentioned in Twitter actually that um, uh, about twelve hundred apprentices were dumped, which was you know for one company was nearly two percent of all UK construction apprentices. That was, that was a huge number. And the thing about apprentices, I think that's why it's worth mentioning them specifically, is because these are these aren't just they're not graduates who at least have had have got a degree have got some level of transferability after these are people who are these are young people in the in the main who are kind of career wise pretty vulnerable they're entirely reliant on their employer giving them everything they need in terms of both training and salary so for them to have the rug pulled out from underneath them that that was and actually this was quite a controversy in and of itself i think the treatment of the apprentices within Carillion and, and what happened to them some were picked up elsewhere but the vast majority just had to start you know start their career again so uh, yeah not really not 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 a good situation and this was right at the peak when we were supposed to be pushing apprentices apprentices were supposed to be you know the most amazing thing everyone should become an apprentice and then all of a sudden the rugs pulled right out underneath them um yeah did you uh, did you have you had any apprentices come forward to 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 speak to you in the project uh, samir 
No, no, no. I mean, so so far it's it's maybe been mainly been subcontractors. Mm. Um, interestingly, yeah. yeah um, okay. Well, I mean, like one subcontractor I, I spoke to, they so they provided um, more like um, services like grounds maintenance, winter services, including at railway stations, but okay, yeah. across the three in the state, and they made about ten percent of their workforce kind of, um, redundant like overnight because of the because of because of what happened. Yeah. Um, and 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 interestingly, what they said was what what. Um, what kept them afloat because they were at risk of of, of collapse um, was um, the beast from the east. So their winter services were became suddenly in great demand, ah. and that kind of basically kept them from um, from being in kind of like even more kind of serious like yeah, yeah. Um, rates. But at the time, like a lot of subcontractors weren't willing to to speak out because they were concerned that if they were highlighted as being affected by this, they would seem they would be seen to have like the contagion of of of, of association with Karelia that they that they would be un- financially unstable or unviable. Yeah. So they and then there's the risk but, that there's but, flight, and then that would be you know cascade effect. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, t- yeah, it's interesting that I mean. This is partly where the story becomes. In- you've got these macro effects, and something like the beast from the east being a, a situation that. Is, is that rescues some of the service providers that is that is quite interesting uh yeah i hadn't even thought about some of that uh it's worth and we're going to touch on the big four later it's worth saying that uh, i've put a little asterisk next to redundant the, the people who are made redundant because it's worth noting that pricewaterhousecoopers withheld redundancy package information um from uh from the from some of the workers who've been made redundant and who are looking to kind of you know be able to support their families or 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 be able to pay the rent and and pwc was uh uh, and suffered grief for the fact that they withheld redundancy package information. So, I don't know. I don't know if you've come across that, but uh, yeah, we'll perhaps touch on that when we get to the big four later, because <laughs> it's. Uh, I don't think it reflects well on on. Uh, I don't think any of this story reflects well on the big four, to be honest. But uh, we'll get there. So, what else? Um, oh, the pension liabilities. So, there were two thousand uh, sorry, twenty seven thousand members of of thirteen different pension schemes associated with Carillion, and all of them took a pension hit of varying sizes. I don't think anyone entirely lost their pension. I was trying to work out if that was if that was the situation. I don't think anyone entirely lost it, but there was certainly a um, uh, yeah, there was a, a pension hit of kind of quite you know varying sizes to to all of the the the, the 27,000 members of these pension schemes i believe which is uh yeah I, I, never hit people's pensions it's really not uh not an ideal situation and people aren't going to be very happy if you do that uh, and it makes their lives a lot harder so pensions uh, another element was um was about uh delayed projects and the fact that you had the all these contracts you know the physical projects that Carillion were working on that that suddenly they weren't working on anymore. And actually, I have found it impossible to build up a decent idea of cost. There's some small figures of, oh, the government only had to bail out £150 million worth of on projects. But I, I, this just does not... I, I, this is not well reflected. I, th- I don't think this adds up, to be honest, because the, the scale of the projects, the scale of the disruption, and then the unforeseen situation where actually, um, uh, you know, you had... Uh, Kind of, you've got these delayed projects. All these costs, or, or several, almost all these costs, were borne by local or national authorities. And um, there were, I think, around three hundred contracts that needed to be transferred. But again, I'm, that I'm not quite sure what what the sort of Venn diagram of how that's categorized. But the key thing is that on, on all these, it was constantly it was stories of 
these projects, the delays to these projects, in turn result in delays or indeed cancellations of other projects, particularly for the local authority ones. National ones, perhaps not so much, but for the local authority ones, where local authorities can't borrow money in the same way the government can. It'd be nice if they could, they can't. And so if they're up against it with cash flow, on, on actually providing cash flow to these contracts, they really do just have to cancel projects that were supposed to be delivered to kind of... So, so delays... To, so, so there are real hits to sort of city projects as a result of the, the some of the failures. And, you know, the hospitals are an example, but there are also sort of big public realm works. There, there are quite a few major Carillion projects in, in some of the big cities. In fact, you know, Liverpool and Manchester had Carillion projects that, that were delayed. Um, Samir, anything on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the, the figure must be higher than, than, as you said, like 100... 50 million if only because like um you know w- uh, one of the you know the kind of the, the short-term causes of its collapse was several projects going quite significantly over over budget like i think uh, a bypass in scotland yeah the aberdeen, and, but the awpr the aberdeen western peripheral route my, the bypass i wrote a, i wrote my first civil engineering pa- project paper on that when i was like 11 <laughs> it took a while um yeah, so it's, it's, it would seem extraordinary that there wouldn't be that there wouldn't be kind of like greater cost to government, if only because like it was already over cost. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, I, you know, I've worked in in local authorities and just the kind of yeah, the 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 the, the cost of having to shift all of the all of the priorities and find a new contractor, relet it. Yeah. You, can't, you can't you can't easily just find someone to like pick it up on the next day yeah it's all it's yeah this is it it's another thing it, you're right it's not just the capital cost which the council's almost got ring fenced and it's coming via government so that's not but it's the fact that, that they're incredibly thin on the ground operational you know day-to-day running costs that councils just don't have it you know they've had 50 percent cuts in some cases uh, you know I, I know from experience of dealing with the council in york they have like two they have such a small number of officers for given project working given projects and they're all stretched hopelessly thin so so then have to relet all the contracts write new contract documents pay for lawyers to check them all this pain good grief yeah absolutely um uh, the crofter is pointing out there's a certain irony that carillion was building the new paradise building in birmingham for price waterhouse coopers yeah well indeed um okay conflict of interest later <laughs> yeah well quite yeah so um uh ah, right so in terms of supplies i think this is it's obviously the impact on people or on staff is 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 key but i, I think this this this, sex, this this kind of section on suppliers relates back to that as well and i think is important these aren't just you know companies oh, it doesn't matter if these companies go bust whatever no no these are generally the sorts of suppliers to a big contracting organization are ones that are that, that that are supplying physical things and therefore there are a lot of people relying on you know generally a, a higher percentage of uh, of lower paid workers who um rely are very much relying on on the the work that these suppliers are as providing so uh, yeah so you had of, of the of the nearly seven billion uh, pounds of of kind of toast po- total post liquidation liabilities, um, that was by the way three times Carillion's declared amount. They declared three times less than that when they actually initially went went bust. But anyway, so I, I believe a billion quid plus was owed straight to suppliers. Of that, thirty thousand plus small businesses were out of pocket. Um, an average of nearly £100,000 was owed to micro suppliers. So that's like zero to 10 workers. So some of that will be individual consultants and, and contractors, you know, small businesses that think, oh, you know what? We've got a little thing here. We're going to supply to Carillion. It'd be great. Um, and they were owed, on average, 
£100,000 for a little business. Like, £100,000 being owed to a little business like that is just catastrophic. Like, presumably, they, all just, they were just... You'd be wiped out if you had that level of, of, of debt. Um, an average of nearly 250000 was owed to kind of medium-sized suppliers. So that's um, 50 to 249 workers. So this is... These are huge figures. And actually, some suppliers were losing as much as, you know, 1.4 million, I think. That was the largest loss to a um, to one of these kind of medium-sized suppliers. Absolutely tremendous kind of uh, losses. And, and and you can sort of trace... It's a bit like excess deaths with COVID. You could trace... Every year, certain num- a certain number of businesses become insolvent in a year. And if they subtracted kind of the average amount hundreds of of new suppliers that you wouldn't expect to fell into insolvency in the first in the first quarter of 2018 immediately after the collapse of Carillion. so that's a huge number of businesses just absolutely wiped out by Carillion. so it wasn't just Carillion; it was all the organizations relying on it and i think my last word on this before before i kind of I hand over to samir to maybe talk on this a bit is is what choice did and indeed still do these suppliers have when such a sizable proportion of of work, uh, you know, such a sizable proportion of the work being done by an entire country is going through one organisation, you know, these suppliers don't have the choice to be able to be like, ah, we're not going to work with Carillion, they're clearly dodgy. They have to work with these organisations because such a high volume of spend is happening. You know, particularly regionally, if if a regional project is being run by Carillion, there is no other major source of income for the for for sort of you know, if you're a supplier of certain types of materials or staff. You know, what can you do? Um, Samir, I'm sure you've got thoughts on this bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that um, that's worth noting as well is that, you know, for those small businesses that survived but you know, were out of pocket, they're still out of pocket. They've not yeah. they've not had their, they've not had their money. So this is this this is still like debt that's on their balance sheets mm. or on you know, kind of uh, um, hanging over hanging over them. And they've they, they've had to to live with that and they still live with the with the financial impact of that you know kind of like four years on absolutely uh, yeah. yeah sorry go on yeah um, and no i think i think as well like yeah your, your point around what happens when effectively you know kind of one one company has so much of the um of the work within it is actually i mean it's it, you know it's it's um it becomes becomes not um you know monopolistic and you know that you kind of wonder like what is it what is it doing that the, that either the, the state couldn't do in a more accountable yeah. way or or, or something. and even i think even then if you're not directly dealing with Carillion, um you might be indirectly dealing with it you might not be a, a like a prime subcontractor yeah. but presumably you could be a subcontractor or it could be contracted down to you as well so your exposure um to it would you know would would still be quite pretty significant absolutely Um, yeah construction in particular like i think services maybe their um exposure was less bad because when when the administrators took over like if you have a contract to to like um maintain a, a train station um, with Carillion, when it's taken over by the administrators, the administrators are, are pretty interested in keeping you on to kind of keep it going. That's that's yeah. kind of made that that's 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 the difference between that and if you've got half of a hospital built and then suddenly like it all goes like who knows where the information is kept anymore yeah. or meant to turn up tomorrow or anything. It just it, 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 it's it's utterly chaotic and and 
and also like construction the construction sector just just works in a very different way it's far it's far more vulnerable to those kind of shocks yeah absolutely i think and we'll definitely touch on a few you're asking in here about the base of nationalization or uh, you know how what those those impacts are don't worry we'll, we'll be very much touching on that again um later in the episode about about those kind of impacts and and, and the way that big monopolies work and 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 how it ends up in that situation so i think to sort of summarize this yeah suppliers are sort of trapped really by by this sort of scale of of monopolism uh when it came to carillion and the impact as you say the impact across uh, service providers and construction companies suppliers you know design some of these you know some of the organizations not on here are, are companies like the ones that I you know Atkins the, the design consultancy that I used to work for when they they had huge contracts with you know, Arup as well both had major contracts with Carillion they'll have taken it on the chin um and they also have major lawyer teams who are quite good at negotiating with the um the 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 liquid you know the the administrators and probably okay they'll have made big losses but as a percentage i dare say they won't have suffered so badly and also they can absorb some of that pain they can re you know they can retask designers to do work on other projects they can you know or indeed as as a lot of the case was those projects ended up being delivered by someone else so actually they just re-engaged again after a short pause so those large organisations probably didn't suffer too much. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that Atkins and Arup uh, suffered a big hit. You know, My current consultancy that I work for, Arcadis, invariably had Carillion contracts, will have taken a bit of a hit. But I don't think so much as some of the, the, the small and medium enterprises are the ones I think that are the most exposed because they don't have the legal, sort of, they don't have the lawyers, they don't have the cash flow, you know, they don't have the liquidity, they don't have the, the money in the bank fundamentally to sort of ride out that sort of pain. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, the small and medium enterprises really suffered. So I think the next thing um, to talk about is why the hell this happened, uh, because there's a risk that this <laughs> this bit might go long because it does get fiddly. Oh my goodness! So why did Carillion collapse? Well, to start with, all oh, right. In fact, I'm going to get rid of our faces for this bit because I managed to do graphs that are definitely going to be underneath our faces. So um, we'll we'll be back shortly. Don't worry, everyone. Firstly, here is a graph. Now, this graph um, is covering the period from 2009 to 2018 for those in audio-only form. And um, the uh, y-axis here has uh, some values on it. And there are three lines. So the, the, the bottom line there, the solid line, is operational income. So that's the cash coming into Carillion from 2009 towards 2018. And you can see that there's a, a bit of a bit of a surge in 2014 but for the most part it's a downward trend and it becomes catastrophically downwards um from kind of 2016 onwards not healthy so the other line uh, here this this kind of dashed line at the top is the pension deficit so this is how much uh, this is the size of the pension deficit up here um, and you can see that pension deficit is climbing year on year it's increasing so they're, they're not paying down their pension liabilities annually the other line is this dotted line, which is dividends paid. Now, you'll notice the thing with this dividends paid line. And actually, okay, on this scale, you can't quite see. But actually, this pretty much climbed every year other than in 2017 when they announced a load of losses. And indeed, it climbed again between 2017 and 2018. So they were continuing to, to, to kind of these dividends were climbing year on year. So the number one thing that we can see here from this is that the shareholder dividends were being paid out before Carillion was satisfying their pension commitments, which meant climbing debt uh, and uh, not a very healthy state to be in for it kind of its for its workers but shareholder dividends were being paid before pension commitments but that's not the end of the story in fact it's barely the start of the story so if we go back to this little graph um, I've scaled I've changed the scale slightly so you can see there's more space at the top because 
fundamentally what that meant was that over time, um, the total debts owed. So if your pension deficit is climbing and climbing, your operational income is dropping, but you're still paying dividends the same year on year, then your total debts owed are just going to climb and climb. And so this is sure enough, by the time you're reaching, you know, 2018, the debts are, you know, one and a half billion of debts and, and climbing. Uh, it's just, you know, that, that, this was not a healthy situation. But how did this happen? How did it get reach this point? You know, how was this level of debt possible? And the first way that this level of debt was possible is da, 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 reverse factoring, the thing which I mentioned earlier, reverse factoring. Now, um, Samir and I are going to stay quiet for a moment because we're going to let our friends from, uh, we're going to let Riley and Alice and Hussein and the Trash Future crew um, explain what reverse factoring is because, frankly, it's very fiddly and they'll do a better and probably funnier job of it than I can. So um, so we're going to let the Trash Future crew uh, tell us for a couple of minutes. Take it away, Riley. To remind you, reverse factoring is when a company handles its accounts payable by a third party. So um, suppliers accept a cut but get paid today rather than in the future. Yeah, so, I outsource um, my debts. Yeah, I'm, I'm owed, uh, I'm owed $100 dollars I accept 98 so I get paid today instead of in the future. And what makes this so incredibly pernicious is that this basically means that um, companies are able to turn their entire supply chain into a personal bank uh, that they can then invent new credit out of thin air. Companies have effectively been able to print money in some cases, but without it showing up as debt. So uh, a lot of what happens is a large company will extend their payment schedule to some ludicrous amount of time, say like 120, 160 days. Uh, and then um, say if you, want, uh, if you want to be paid in, in 30 days, which is a normal like, amount of time to have an invoice to be processed, you must use our reverse factoring partner and therefore accept a, a reduced amount of the invoice. And the crazy thing is that effectively turns the company's accounts payable, so the things I have to pay you as a supplier of, of items to my company, that turns that from just normal operating expenses into debt, which is then owed to a financial institution, can be renegotiated, but most importantly, securitized and sold. I mean, let's let's be clear, there's there's two parts of this, right? There's the reverse factoring part in and of itself is literally just this Australian monorail guy comes to your company and offers to give you the money printer that governments have. And then for as long as that works, you can just be like brrr and print out all of the stuff <laughs> that you would normally be paying for, like, I don't know, the fuel to run your machines or the electricity to keep your lights on. Uh, just off of the back of this, like, black box Australian corporation. The other half of that is that what that Australian corporation is doing with that debt is sort of turning it into a financial instrument that it can gamble yeah. with. That's correct. That's the exactly right. machine, which fuels the bond machine. It feels normal, innovative, something that we've never seen before, and something that I feel will just be fine. So there we go. Thanks, uh, thanks, Riley, for letting me uh, clip that out of um, uh, of Trash Future. Strong recommend, and I'm going to plug it again at the end. Go and listen to Frankenstein's balance sheet because it's a fantastic explanation of how absolutely doolally this is. So that was Trash Future explaining um, uh, explaining what reverse factoring is. Now, in Carillion's case, um, this came down to you know enter Carillion's early payment facility, which was a a scheme by which suppliers took a financial hit if they didn't sign up to this EPF, the early payment facility, which, as exactly as Riley explains, took their payment schedules from 
this ridiculous contrived 120, 160 days, I think it was even, um, down to a more regular 30 days, but with a financial hit, which, as, again, Riley explained, basically turned the whole of their, their sort of supply chain, uh, all of their suppliers into their own personal bank. Um, we will we'll explain precisely, well, kind of not precisely, but broadly how that worked uh, next. But that's, so that's number one thing. Uh, related to that is um, is also this guy, it's David Cameron. Hooray! Uh, oh golly, yeah. This this is a this Samir. This took me on such a rabbit hole. Honestly, <laughs> I didn't realize quite how much this was going to come full circle, but it, it it did. So we've got Carillion's early payment facility, and we've got David Cameron. What ties these two together? So let's jump to the Financial Times. Uh, in fact, let's bring Samir's face. Let's get our little faces back in the corner again. Hi, Samir. We're we're, we're both back. So. Um, this is a right. I strongly recommend that you look up this Financial Times long read. It's well worth a read, everyone. Um, it, it, it it's very helpful to explain the context of this. But this just gets grubbier and grubbier because this reverse factoring was essentially invented. Well, not essentially. It was invented by Australian financier Lex Greensill, um, uh, and. <laughs> As I, if if you remember, we we I put it as a timeline point, October twenty twelve, and um, I'm actually going to read a little extract from the piece because I think it's worth reading. So we've had so much reading, but I'm going to read a little bit more because I think it's worth just reading this in detail. So this this is from the Financial Times piece. Um, in fact, I'm going to have to get rid of our faces again so I can read it through. So, and I'm going to highlight bits that I think are relevant to highlight. But in fact, I'm going to make me get me red pen uh, out because I think this is uh, there. We are right. So. It was October 2012 and David Cameron was flanked by senior ministers as well as Australian financier Lex Greensill as he announced a new scheme designed to speed up payments to government suppliers. That's right, everyone. This, this is me again talking. David Cameron announced this reverse factoring thing with his chum Lex Greensill. Um, here we go. So the then British Prime Minister described the supply chain finance initiative as a win-win for industry when the UK had only just emerged from recession. Under the scheme, suppliers' bills were settled up front by banks for a small charge rather than the typical 60 to 90 day wait with contractors. The aim was to ease their cash flow at a time when banks were wary of traditional lending. Cameron had no idea he was helping create a central plank in Carillion's later scandal. So, uh, so duh, 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 let's skip forwards. In the midst of the crisis around Greensill Capital, everyone remember Greensill Capital? It went bust recently. Um, uh, the Carillion thing has become a, a footnote. Duh, 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 duh. Uh, and indeed, uh, all of this basically something that it helped, something that um, Greensill helped uh, kind of create. Uh, so that can be traced uh, right back to the, the Cameron announcement. Um, and so this this is this is worth pointing out. Carillion's use of supply chain finance became contentious because shortly after the scheme was launched, the company extended its maximum payment times to suppliers from 65 to 120 days, in effect forcing subcontractors to use this scheme, the EPF scheme, even if they had to pay a price. Uh, and then and then it's uh, sort of we've uh, uh, move on to the next bit and it says Cameron absolutely pushed the supply chain finance initiative and sent a letter to the government's 20 biggest suppliers urging them to come to a meeting at 10 Downing Street where they were pressed to use the scheme, according to one person close to Carillion. Carillion never used Greensill, but its finance team had several meetings with the entrepreneur who was working as an unpaid advisor in the cabinet office. Uh, wait, what? With his own desk and a team of four civil servants. Executives had stars in their eyes about him, said one former employee. 
According to people briefed on the plans, Carillion set up its early payment facility, its own version of the scheme Cameron announced, after meeting Greensill. Senior executives at some of the government's other big UK contractors were also called in to meet the entrepreneur. Right, I have to do my biggest, like, contractor boss voice now. Uh, there was no real threat, but there was a certain pressure put on because the government was a big client, said the head of one of the uh, then FTSE 100 contractors. I thought it was odd that Number 10 pushed the scheme as Greensill was not a government official and interest rates were low at the time. I don't know why I've made him some sort of uh, wheeler car dealer, but I've decided that's the situation. Uh, And another executive said that you aren't going to bite the hand that feeds you. So there you go. This is sort of tracing back to our friend David Cameron um, here. And uh, and for me, this is really important. Sorry, Samir, I've left you hanging for for a long time, but I thought it was worth sort of exploring this sort of cosy, weird situation where a guy who owns a company that makes a lot of money out of these schemes is also appointed as someone in government to advise companies to use the schemes that will profit his company that he owns. I'm sure that's all fine, isn't it, Samir, right? Yeah, it's 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 horrifically dodgy. And um, Greensill is one of the other um, places that I thought of looking at in terms of an audit failure as well. But uh-huh. um, one of the other things I think is kind of worth noting is that so in, in my discussion with like some of the um, subcontractors, they were, they were talking about how you know, before the financing facility and reverse factoring, the, um, you know, they were being paid month end plus 90 plus one, they're being paid like late. Yeah. And what was late according to the government guidelines of the, of, um, of the day. So these are government contracts that were being paid late when government, when it's guidelines to, to, to places beyond government was, pay you contractors yeah there, there, are, there are initiatives and, and and regulatory frameworks saying you know there's there's the, the the timely payment scheme to make sure that you get paid within 30 days there, there are lots of schemes saying no no pay pay subcontractors within a healthy time and at the same time cameron was here shouting about oh no delay that you know yes well we're not delaying it because it's everyone is going to obviously sign up to this clever re- reverse factoring scheme anyway so uh david cameron and greensill now if we go back to our little faces i'm sure there's no connection between them these two cosy chums having a having a, a little uh, coffee here in in a sort of a is this like a Bedouin tent? It's very nice for them. Anyway, they're having a nice. It couldn't possibly be the green sill that uh, David Cameron then moved straight to after being prime minister. That couldn't possibly be the same green sill. No, and and not the green sill that um, that he then used and within green sill was pushing uh, government and and sending WhatsApp messages. Um, to force the NHS to use some of Greensill's dodgy accounting methods, um, which were later found to provide no benefit to the NHS despite uh, Greensill earning money for them. No, it's not. It's a different Greensill, surely. It's definitely a, sure it's a different Greensill and a different David Cameron. I'm abso- absolutely sure of it. Anyway, so uh, that's only one part of how this level of debt was possible. A part reverse factoring for a little bit. The other reason was false financial statements. So when I say false financial statements, I mean literally fake financial statements created that were completely fake. Not even just like fiddled, but fake. Um, and this leads us on to the big four. Um, and, and maybe, maybe Samir, if I put the logos of the big four up, maybe you can kind of explain what the big four are and how, how their kind, of kind of fiddling of financial statements led to a situation where Carillion could, could hide, uh, hide this level of debt and, and, and problem. So the, the big four are essentially the, the, yeah, the big four providers of, of audit services in the in the UK. And so 
it's pretty likely that if you're a big company, your auditor is one of these is one of these people, and um, they've come in for a huge amount of criticism over the years, very justifiably, understandably, because they don't appear to be doing a great job at auditing. Um, and it, you know, this is the opinion of um, of the what was it Financial Reporting Council um, as well, who've, who've talked about how um, as much, as many as one in three audits are, are just kind of poorly poorly done and so at Carillion um, their external auditor was KPMG their internal auditor um, internal audit services were provided by Deloitte and <laughs> then when they kind of got into trouble um, Ernst & Young provided turnaround <laughs> advice <laughs> um, worth £10 million pounds, so there's nothing better about being in debt than getting birth and then when it came to managing the insolvency process the last kind of man standing uh was of course PricewaterhouseCooper who um earned in the first eight weeks of their work earned around an estimated 20 million pounds so KPMG in particular were heavily criticized as the external auditor you know, your external audit is meant to, you know, provide challenge and it's meant to kind of like, like haul you, haul you over the coals a bit and point out everything you're doing wrong. And they were accused of being essentially complicit in the company's accounting practices that were, you know, masking all of these serious financial problems. And the one of the quotes from um, there was a, a, a parliamentary uh parliamentary session about um, about a select committee session they said that they were complacently complacently signing off its directors increasingly fantastical figures <laughs> yeah it was just yeah absolutely it's just mind-blowing that this was because i suppose the, if, if i just cut in for, for momentarily the, the point of financial statements isn't they're not a sales pitch they're supposed to be a way for suppliers, uh, you know, contract, you know, other contractors, clients to understand the health of a company's finances. They're not supposed to be a sales pitch. They're supposed to just be a, a matter of fact statement of the health of, of a company. But they've turned into a thing that now they're, you know, they're a tool for tax evasion or tax avoidance. They're a, a tool for using as a sales pitch. They're a tool for building shareholder wealth and facilitated by the big four. Yeah, and. So interesting as well, Deloitte, as the internal auditors were accused of failing to notice or ignore terminal failings, quote, um, at, at Carillion. And, you know, kind of um, when the Financial Reporting Council did their investigation, um, you know, they, it, they've, they've ultimately kind of, uh, so in September of, of last year, um, they, they announced a kind of like a formal formal complaint i think it was, it was in, in, um kind of called in, um into kpmg mm. and it alleges that there that specific people within uh, within kpmg um, provided false and misleading information and documents as part of the the audit of credit accounts in 2016 and hot off the back of that the official receiver um so you know who who you know was dealing with this with, the, with, with, with this kind of like collapsing company, yeah, has uh, lodged a claim worth a billion pounds against um, yeah, well, up, to, I, up to a billion pounds against KPMG, and the, the hearing for, for that is just is just uh, just starting. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. 
so so one of the <clears throat> one of the kind of like the themes that seems to kind of come out from all of it is you know Korean were very good or very aggressive at hiding their debt and hence the reverse factoring um issue and you know both in terms of some of the domestic projects that were going over budget but then also um there was um international projects that had that essentially kind of they the payment was being withheld or was not mm. forthcoming and that was and they were kind of essentially kind of trying to trying to hide their their levels of debt and then when I was interviewing one of the the subcontractors about this they they talked about how when when things started to um to go downhill from you know like July 2017 um Korean would be you know they they would be paying them but they would dodge giving them a um a purchase order so that they couldn't issue an invoice because if you issued an invoice they would show up as as you show up as a creditor on their balance sheet and so therefore you'd look like you know you'd, you'd show how much debt you were you were incurring whereas if you could hold that off you could have all of the money from you know that you're meant to be passing on to these suppliers and subcontractors and not have the not have the debt and and you know it's, it's a, another, another manipulation that see that rings that's interesting <coughs> because and i wouldn't want to cast any aspersions on my commercial colleagues at my former employer but i remember them having headaches dealing with and kind of half-heard conversations that i heard my commercial like my my commercial shout out to kenny crockett hero um commercial manager at my former employer sort of having very long stressed conversations trying to understand why i, I you know, half heard conversations that that sound similar to that actually with with challenges with invoicing and 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 you know and the discussions atkins weren't in contract so control period five started in in 2014 i, I think it took three or i think possibly the contracts had not even been finalized for the rates that carillion were going to pay atkins even by their collapse because there were back and forth discussions with carillion clearly trying to to squeeze what they could and so it's an indication of a very aggressive accounting and, and, and kind of commercial strategy combined with some of this shady stuff going on it's really not a healthy situation not a healthy situation at all sorry i interrupted again oh no that, 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 uh, i think i got to the and they got to the, the the end of my point but this is this is perhaps kind of one of the i mean you know and also like um you know, as, as you were saying earlier, that, that because um, through the reverse factoring, the suppliers were being used as basically as an income source yeah. into into the the company as well. They they seem to be you know, basically doing whatever they could to make their their balance sheet look better than it was. So it's perhaps no surprise that that that, that you know that there is actual kind of um, dishonesty in in terms of the of, you know, providing of of information kind of going on as well as well. But you know the you know what's what's the point of, of if you you gotta wonder what um you know what your auditors are doing if they if they can't see yeah. if they can't see this and it was and it's, you know, it's obvious that you know, the the criticism is that well it, it it would have been hard not to have seen any of this and for them not to have raised red flags but they didn't and and, it, and the criticism being that you know that actually in these very cozy these relationships have become very cozy and no one wants to kind of be giving bad news yeah you're not going to be awarded the contract again to do the auditing if you if you don't 
tick the box at the end of the at the end of the sheet. As someone's pointed out in the chat, in fact, you know, you, there's there's no ch you're not going to get employed KPMG or Deloitte or EY or PwC. You're not going to get asked to come back if they if they say if they say nasty mean things to the the person holding the purse, you know, the person holding the cash and and with the with their name hovering over the sign sign check. So. Yeah, it's 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 problematic, and this is where the regulators come in. But the yeah. regulators are increasingly toothless; they're they're powerless to really resolve this. And 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 all of the official reports pointed out that the regulators essentially have no teeth to to actually resolve any of these problems anyway. Um, yeah. So let us um let's let's crack on. Conscious time. I've already broken your hour, and I'm taking away your evening from you. But right. the, so these two factors, so the, these two issues. Sorry. So the reverse factoring and the fiddled and faked financial statements. So kind of you know, th thing number one. I've gone red. And thing number two, um, both of those, they, they not only did they hide the mess, but they enabled the mess. So they, they, it was kind of a bit of a, a kind of a feedback loop. They enabled the mess and then they also hid the mess, um, which meant that the, the red flags that should have been flicking up uh, did not. How saddened I am by all of Tell you what I'm going to do, which is fix my slide deck because I've forgotten to, to make a thing happen. Uh, you can all enjoy um, you can all enjoy that. The former CEO of uh, of Carillion getting very upset with himself. Uh, there we are. Da, 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 da. There we are. You'll, you'll, there we are. Uh, on the fly video editing. Here we go. Look at that. Professional. How saddened I am by all of the events. Deeply saddened and how sorry I am. I'm very sorry for what's happened. I am deeply sorry for the impact. That the collapse of the company had. Uh, no, they're not. They're not sorry at all. They're not <laughs> sorry. Um, that was a load of people saying that they're very sorry that they uh, they're ever so sorry that the that, that it collapsed. But but they're not. Of course, they they aren't remotely sorry at all. Um, I always find it weird when you have these these executives who clearly don't care. I'm not saying that they're evil people, but they were they you know they were operating within a, a climate and they were presiding over an organization that. Um, like just resulted in tens of thousands of of uh, people losing their job, thousands of redundancy. Oh, sorry, sorry, thousands of people losing their job. Um, lots of people probably uh, resulting in families being destroyed. You know, potentially people losing their, you know, taking their own life. All these, all of the known consequences of work being taken away from people, of people being made redundant. All of the social impacts of that, and then you know they they they. It would almost be better if they didn't apologise. You know, it's like this. The, the, who are they performing for here? Anyway, I'm very angry at looking at these people apologising. So let's move on. Oh, what can we learn from this? Oh, what can we learn from this? Um, well, I've turned the slide deck red, which should give hints to long-time uh, Rail Matter watchers. So this is an interesting quote from Keith Cochran, um, uh, who I don't know what Keith Cochran sounds like, but I'm going to make him uh, regional. But he was the Carillion CEO at the time in twenty in um, twenty seventeen September twenty seventeen. Actually, he was shortly after that made uh, he was booted out. But he 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 quoted this. He said, "We were building a Rolls Royce, but only getting paid to build a Mini." I don't know why he's from Middlesbrough, but he is. Um, it's that quote: "Building a Rolls Royce, but only getting paid to build a Mini." Comes back to some of the project, the lack of project health, and this, for me, this quote speaks to a deeper problem speaks to a far deeper problem which is this it's the idea of successive uk governments convincing themselves that they can build and maintain a functioning society at less than the going rate and how do they believe that they can do this they believe they can do this by outsourcing to increasingly ungainly organizations that cannot bend reality so attempt to bend their finances 
that that for me is like the that's the deeper issue here it's not just oh outsourcing is bad it's the idea that we can deliver a society that works for everyone at less than the cost that it at less than the cost that it clearly is to deliver that and the only way we can act and we send it to and somehow that governments of of both uh, stripes of all stripes believe that the way to do this is by giving it to companies who give them the right answer back but the only way they can achieve that is by all of this financial chaos that we've just witnessed i don't know i that for me feels like the deep the, the kind of the deep baseline lesson underneath all of this samir I, I don't know if that if that kind of reflects your 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 views and beliefs kind of having having kind of looked through this and, and working through this the, the kind of the project i mean i think i'm, I'm perhaps a, um, a bit more skeptical of outsourcing per se but i think you know definitely in you know like especially especially kind of post financial crisis and and austerity um you know the the solution to making um budgets make sense both at a national government level and at a local government level is mm. to squeeze the contractors um and to kind of like find find money through the through the yeah, through the contractors which you know is is a false economy yeah. and i think the you know the 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 point around the kind of just how much work is being channeled through through increasingly huge suppliers that uh, earn large amounts of their work through the public sector is is just it it becomes that kind of strange thing of like at what point are you a private sector company that works mainly in in, in doing like public sector stuff versus for example you know in other countries where public sector owned companies do private sector work yeah exactly it's it's and it comes back to the railways and the discussion that we have about railways you know the franchise companies um ever increasingly towards the collapse of the franchising system were organizations that had no control over anything. <laughs> the only thing they had control over was was staffing rate, was staffing, was staff. The only thing they had control over was staff, which actually is very similar to the situation with some of these big outsourcing uh, organizations. And so ultimately they are, whether, whether it says, whether they are legally recorded as such or not, they are essentially state organizations. They, they are, all of the money that comes from the state, they're delivering state services. At which point, you know, you know, you start with well, okay, well, why are we? Why why is there a profit? Wh- wh- where's the profit motive coming through this? And where's the value? And what what value is this adding? Is the value just that they can bend finances in a way that the public sector can? And at which point is or is is that hugely unhealthy? Well, yes, it is. Um, and obviously, you know, I, and and you don't necessarily have to buy into these, Samir. But it, it's uh, well, actually, fundamentally, this this comes back to an, a, a, the theme, the thread that runs through so many rail natural episodes, which is that this becomes a treasury issue. Actually, Treasury's lack of interest in investing um, and their 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 desire desperately to invest as little as possible and to have as little on their own balance sheet as possible leads to some of these behaviours. So, I mean, obviously, we have to abolish the treasury. That's that's obviously a thing that we have to do. Um, but also. Uh, capitalism is broken and the UK is horribly corrupt. Uh, I, there was a thing recently where it's like people got very unhappy with the... Someone accused... I can't remember who it was. Someone accused the UK of being corrupt. And someone's like, no, no, it's not the UK that's corrupt. It's just our government. That's, it's just, you know, Boris and the Tories are corrupt. It's like, no, no, the whole UK is a horribly corrupt country. Why have we kidded? Just because we don't give tenors to police on the street corner doesn't mean that this is not a... Arguably, that's a significantly less bad form of corruption than the horrible high-level corruption impacts on all of us that we have in the UK. We've got our own breed of special broken country corruption that we do here, as evidenced by um, this cheerful chappy here, uh, who... Uh, wreck the country uh, more 
got $10 million uh, and then tried to flee the NHS and then ran off and is, is fine. He's fine. Don't worry about David. He's all right. Oh, anyway, Samir, I uh, will. I, I'm sure you probably haven't got anything to add to all that. We can just look at this man's shiny face here. Um, uh, yeah, there we are. Right. I, I, there's often like on the on the corruption it, on the corruption issue. Like uh, I think there's there's often the view that corruption is something that happens basically in poorer countries in the world. That, yep. that, that, that you, you couldn't possibly have have um, corruption in the UK. And as you said, like that kind of like the the, the daily kind of uh, um, paying the police officer off with with the tenor is going you know sort of like like whatever. Whereas actually, kind of you know even if you're just looking at some of the the COVID contract stuff kind of recently, it's it's pretty kind of brazen kind of what's yeah. happening. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's so many layers of like uh, sort of post-colonial uh, exceptionalism that we think that we are, you know, we are lovely. This country doesn't do corruption. We don't do corruption. <laughs> it's, it's all the other foreigner countries that do corruption. It's like, mm, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, hopefully people have been availed of that belief following all of the COVID sort of emerging kind of belief, you know, stuff around uh, contracts for PPE and what have you. I'm hoping that people won't kind of will have been broken out of that a bit and people will be a bit more cynical. But anyway, right. Um, I've taken up I'm already minutes, 13 minutes beyond the hour, which is, I suppose, not too bad for a round matter these days. Um before we uh, before we come back to uh, Samir to talk a bit about a project specifically, in fact, the reason why Samir is on, we must um, whiz through to end the episode. So, um, in audio only form as ever, uh, listen on. Uh, hopefully, this worked in audio only format. I don't know, but th- th- there are lots of funny pictures, so you're missing out on some of the gags, and also you're missing out on me sketching money bags. So you know you're missing out on all the good stuff, audio only listeners. But available on all podcasting platforms. Uh, the usual plugs: Patreon.com/slash/GarethDennis for more of this sort of thing. Um, the, the merchandise i haven't actually i need to actually speak to the masquette send me a dm because i need to speak to you because i haven't actually talked about how many people have bought but i saw a lot of masks at the live recording over the weekend which means presumably some people have bought merchandise which is both odd and fun uh paypal.me slash gareth dennis for pennies and gareth dennis.co.uk slash discord for the continued chatter um after the episode uh, oh, also, uh, thanks very much to Riley, who I asked, I, I DM'd and asked if I could uh, steal that snippet, which I think nicely explained reverse factoring. Um, uh, but go and listen to the episode. It's a brilliant episode. And also just listen to Trash Future. It's brilliant. Um, and, right, so, Samir, I've put up a screenshot from the from the website, which I'll put a link to in the description of the video. But I thought it was a chance, it's a chance for you to talk about the project. So I'll, I'll bring our little faces back um, as a chance for you to tell everyone about the project and also a, a call to action for anyone who is involved. Yeah, so yeah, just um, briefly, I'm still looking to talk to uh, people who are directly affected by the collapse of, of Carillion. And, um, you know, like, a, you know, essentially, you can kind of reach, reach out to me on on Twitter. It's pretty easy. Um, I'm on at s a j e r a j, so my name. <laughs> um, and you know, probably take maybe like a uh, just yeah, like a, a half hour interview and write up, and then you know, it'll be essentially be used to illustrate what the impact of of these kind of like failures of auditors has on on people, mm. businesses, and communities. Absolutely. It's, it's that it's that the impact. It's something that is easy to forget for the auditors. They are sufficiently distanced from it that they forget. But it's it's worth us always thinking about the human impact of, of these sorts of quite broad and ethereal financial things. They have a real world impact on people. You know, they're 
people in the chat here who were who were let down by Krillin. There, you know, thousands and thousands of people across not just the UK but the whole planet were let down by the collapse of Krillin and let down by those who should have uh, known better and should have been keeping an eye on on the problems. So yeah, um, absolutely, reach out and and yeah, I'll make sure to put the website up and um, and the ways that you can contact um, Samir um, so that you can get get in touch. Um, Samir, that's been brilliant. Uh, and indeed, oh, before we so before I before we come back to Samir, it's worth saying that next week is it's a pre-record, but it was the live pre-record in front of a studio audience. So um, this was uh, it's the hundredth episode next week, which is very strange. So this was the ninety ninth episode technically, even though it was episode ninety eight. Um, so yeah, next week, uh, the good and bad ways to stop errant trains. It's the buffer stop episode at last. Uh, I'll be putting it together uh, properly uh, tonight, I think. So. Uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be next week. I'll, I'll, I'll be looking forward to it. And I'm recording a, a very good episode at the same time as the pre-record goes out. I'll be recording another pre-record, which will be going out a couple of weeks later, which should be fun, but I'm not telling you about that. Um, yeah, next week's episode was in support of York LGBT Forum. Uh, it's our first sort of um, charity uh, money-raising episode as well, and that worked quite nicely. So, um, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, I'm looking forward to you all seeing it. Oh, and now back to, back to Samir to say, Samir, that has been absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much for coming on. Um oh inviting me no it's been a pleasure me me excitedly kind of um uh me excitedly kind of ranting onwards um uh but uh it was useful to have you kind of uh pinning me down a bit and <laughs> bringing some bringing a bit of reality back to back to matters so uh, no thanks so much for for joining and um an absolute pleasure everyone in the chat um thanks for joining us as well and we will see you i'll see you all next week uh so uh, yeah, basically, Samir. Unless you've got any last words for, for but no, I, I, me neither. I think I'm spent. I've talked about David Cameron too much for one episode, so I think I'm, I'm exhausted. I need to go and have a have a cold shower. Um, everyone, we'll see you next week. Samir, thanks so much. Cheerio, everyone. Cheerio.